All right. Sorry. Good morning. If you weren't awake, you are now, and you're about to really be awake in just a moment. So you see all these lovely kiddos up here and a couple of adults as well. Um, so this is our Praise Maker Choir. They've been working with the bells, and so they're going to start this morning. they got two songs for us, and it's awesome to see them up here serving the Lord together.
Amen. That was amazing. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer where they put the bells up and then parents are going to come find you. Father, what an amazing way to start this worship service. Lord, just a reminder that you are a God who is to be worshipped, a God that we are to serve and adore, and Lord, that even children can do that. And so, Lord, they've set the example for us this morning as to what it looks like to get up and just to, just to declare praises to you through bells. And so, Father, as we now transition into doing that through music and through song, Father, may we just lift up praise to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship together. Strength to face a day. 
Amen, amen. Our God is mighty to save. Amen. Mighty to save. Good morning. Welcome to Northside Baptist Church. We're so thankful that you're here. Would you take a moment? Welcome those around you. If you will return to your seats and you may be seated. Well, good morning. Let me welcome you to Northside once again. So thankful that you are here to worship with us. If this is your first time, you are our guest. We are honored to have you with us. We want to love on you and we want to do that well. We want to pray for you if there's any way that we can pray for you. One way that will help us if this is your first time with us, if you'll just take a moment um, to let us know that, there's a QR code that you can scan inside the bulletin, um, fill out some information about yourself online, or there is a Connect card that you can pick up um, in the foyer. Um, it's a fun day. We do have a spaghetti lunch right after the service. We'll say more about that and some instructions at the end of the service. Um, but I know maybe if you're in that back corner, you can smell it already. Um, man, I know you're thinking about it. But I'm going to ask you, right, just to be dialed in this morning as we study God's Word. We have some other things that we're going to do. Um, and so we don't want to eat lunch at 1130. So if it's 1145 or closer to 12, nobody will complain, um, right? So if the service goes a little bit longer. Um, but I want to do two things this morning right now um, in, in a time of prayer. The first thing I want to do is that most of you, I hope everyone in this room is aware, that 21 years ago today, Right, it was September uh, 11, 9-11, a day that for most of us in this room, you remember like it was yesterday. You remember where you were, um, exactly what was going on. But Chris made the point yesterday at Upward that for um, those kids there yesterday have no clue. Unless parents have told them or they've learned it, they, I mean, they weren't alive. Many of you in this room, you weren't alive, and, and that's crazy to think about. And so what we want to do um, this morning is we want to have a time of prayer for that. And then after that, we're going to do a missions focus emphasis. And then we'll have a time of prayer for that. So if you'll join me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for, God, just the opportunity to worship together. Thank you, Father, for the gift of life that we're able to worship together. Because, Lord, the reality is... 21 years ago today, not only was our country shaken and our country impacted, but individuals and families, Lord, their lives were forever changed. 
There are people gathering in churches today. Their husband, their wife, maybe a child is not with them because of the events of 9-11. Lord, we continue just to lift up those families to you. The pain today may be just as great as it was 21 years ago. Father, at the same time, we're thankful. Thankful for on that day, in the midst of horrific circumstances as this country was attacked, Father, we saw some of the greatest things about this country. We saw us come together. We saw true heroes step up in that moment without even thinking. Whether it was flight attendants or men and women on an airplane or our first responders, or maybe even men and women in a building whose first instinct was not to flee and get to safety, but was to help other people. Father, we saw the best in, in America on that day. Father, what we also saw as these events took place on Tuesday, what we saw that following Sunday, where churches were full. People were shaken. They were scared. The first place that sometimes scared, shaken people go is to the church. It's to their faith. And the churches were full. And our country was unified. And here we are 21 years later, and our country is more divided than ever. People seem to be more indifferent and even hostile to faith, to Christianity, even to religion as maybe they've ever been. And Lord, we, we have serious questions about the future of this country. Lord, I pray it does not take another national tragedy to bring us together. Father, I pray for a revival. I pray for a renewing of hearts and lives, spirit of the living God, that you would just do a great work in this country. But Lord, we would be remiss if we did not take a moment this morning just to remember and to express our gratitude for those who, uh, who stepped up on that day, um, for the leadership in our country who stepped up on that day. So thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one thing that we want to do on a monthly basis is we want to emphasize uh, either a mission or some missionaries that we're praying for, that we support, and there's several, and hopefully over the next six to nine months we'll be able to key in on all of those. So this morning we have a couple that we're going to put on the screen. This is John and Giselle. Um, they are missionaries in Ecuador. So John is Johnny and Donna Moss, the missionary family that you have heard about for now close to almost two years, right? This is, in essence, their adopted son. They raised him since he was little. John has surrendered to full-time ministry. He still works in that area with Johnny and Donna, and John is a vital part to the, to the missions that they do there. This is his wife, Giselle. They've only been married for a short time. Sweet couple. Um, John is primarily focused on student ministry, youth ministry, and in Ecuador, as you heard a couple weeks ago, right, you're a youth till you get married, so that's a wide range. Um, he also preaches at two of the seven church plants each week. He brings the youth that he's discipling to the church meetings to learn how to serve in a local church. Um, and just wanted to share with you something from John, his own words. He says, through weekly youth meetings, I've been able to share God's love for each of them and the importance of surrendering their lives to him so that he can change them and so that they can find their true self. 
We have shared very fun moments. This has helped many to find in me a person they can trust to talk about their problems. God has called me to disciple these young people to help them walk closer and closer to Christ. Perhaps their family nucleus cannot be fixed, but their future families can start off the right way. In this way, they will break the cycle of family brokenness that they have been carrying for several generations. So I'm going to ask Pastor Gary to come, and he's going to pray. You see on the screen some ways that we can be in prayer for um, John and Giselle. So as Gary leads us in prayer, would you just be in prayer for this sweet couple? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up John and Giselle to you. We we thank you that you have brought them to this point in their lives. We pray for sustained health. We pray for sustained uh, vision with regards to their ministry. As they gather weekly uh, with the group of students, with those that are older, we pray that you would bless that ministry. We pray that you would bless the, the marriage of John and, Gis and Giselle. We, we pray that you would provide financially for their needs and that, Lord, that their ministry there in Ecuador, Lord, would be well taken care of. We pray for the future direction of ministry decisions as they come up for John and Giselle. Lord, that you would allow them to prosper, allow them to benefit, Lord, from your church. Um, I pray that you would bless and keep them. Lord, you have provided for them to this point. And I pray that for every decision that you have for them, Lord, you would provide um, an answer uh, for their questions. So bless John and, Gis and Giselle. Lord, I pray for the Moss as well, Lord, as they are under their supervision, that you would bless them as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>
Amen and amen. I got to be honest with you, I didn't even want to get up. I just wanted to sit there for a moment and just, uh, and just praise the Lord. I almost don't even want to preach for fear that I'm going to mess, it, mess something up after that. Man, it's one of my favorite songs, It Is Well With My Soul. All right, kiddos, you can head out to Children's Church. We've got our younger class for three and fours, and then our K through second. Everyone else, if you'll take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to return to Ephesians after a break for a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5. I got a picture that we're going to put up on the screen here. So I was reading this week about this area. This is um, called the DMZ. This is the demilitarized zone, thus the DMZ. This, in essence, serves as a border barrier between North and South Korea. The DMZ is 160 miles long. It's about two and a half miles wide. The DMZ crosses rivers, a coastline, mountains, swamps, forest, grasslands, Again, two and a half miles wide, and, and people are not, it's not safe, number one, but people are not allowed in that two and a half mile stretch. So, in essence, it has become a de facto nature reserve. There's an extremely diverse range of plants and animals, and this is just one picture. I mean, just how beautiful it is, and you can go, you can Google and research about all the different plants and animals that live within this two and a half mile stretch between North and South Korea. It's beautiful. And yet, it is extremely dangerous. You can see, right, the DMZ is fortified with large barbed wire fences, but more so than that, the two-and-a-half-mile stretch is riddled with landmines. That's why nobody goes in there. Beautiful, yet very dangerous. As we study Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, over this morning and the next three weeks, you are going to see a beautiful picture of Christian marriage. Beautiful picture of how marriage points to Christ in the church. It's beautiful as we study God's Word. And yet we will also see it is extremely dangerous. Now, why would I say it's extremely dangerous? Because we are living in a culture and a society and among a people who are very confused about marriage, gender, sexuality, and the family. And some, and the number is growing, are even hostile. So though what we're going to see is a beautiful picture to us, or at least it should be, when they hear words like submission and headship, and one woman, and one man, they become angry. And so right up front, this morning is going to be kind of an overview, and then we're going to break this down verse by verse over the next three weeks. So you need to understand right up front, if after these four weeks of study, you hold to what I will teach and what I believe based upon the authority of God's Word is a biblical picture of marriage if you hold to that position, it will be beautiful, but it will be dangerous for you because it is not popular 
in our culture to hold these positions that we believe the Bible teaches. And so the question for us is, will we continue to hold to God's word or will we retreat or try to retell and distort the truth of God's word to match what we want God's word to say? And so let's read these verses together, verses 22 through 33, that we'll unpack over the coming weeks. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? I assume that for most of us, these verses are familiar, but if you have never heard them before, there will be some things that will stick out to you. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father God, I pray that you will help me to speak clearly, that I will not stumble over my words, that I will not misspeak or miscommunicate the truthfulness of this beautiful picture that you have given to us of marriage. Lord, may the hearer hear. May we listen. May we receive this truth willingly. May we submit to the authority of the Word of God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin, because it's been several months since we've been in this book, to remind you of the context. What leads Paul to write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he writes? So what we need to see is the context is that of Spirit-filled living. Spirit-filled living. So go back to verse 18. Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is Spirit-filled living. Now what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Paul gives us five participle words or phrases. Addressing, number one, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number two, singing. Number three, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Number four, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And number five, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul says the Spirit-filled Christian will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the context that follows is spirit-filled living specifically through submission. Now that word submission or subjection or authority, they are not popular words today. Not just in the context of marriage or in the church, but just in general, nobody wants there to be authority over them. That goes against the flesh. Now the word submission means to arrange yourself under someone's authority. Has the idea of right you being um, in 
in battle, in war, right? And you have somebody who is over you. So you're a soldier, someone outranks you. You come under their authority. It's used generally in verse 21. Submitting to one another. And then what Paul does is the Spirit of God leads him is he takes this general principle of submitting to one another and he applies it specifically to three areas of life. Marriage, which is what he does in verses 22 through 33. The home, which is what he does when he talks about children obeying your parents. And then he applies it to the bond-servant-master relationship. The workplace is what we would commonly think of today. So submission, again, this word is not comfortable for a lot of people. Submission is evidence of someone being spirit-filled because submission does not come naturally. Children don't just want to naturally obey their parents. We don't, we don't want to submit to authority. We want to rebel. But submission is evidence of the work and filling of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the reality. Paul is clear in Ephesians. Jesus Christ is king. Amen? He's king. He makes this clear in Ephesians 1 when he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Right above every name that is named, Jesus is ruler. He is king. And we, out of reverence for the king, must submit to him and his word. See, our submission is ultimately to God. Our submission is ultimately under the authority of God in his word. But then God, in the scriptures we see this, right, delegates that authority to human beings. So we have in the scripture different ways in which God says that we are to submit. We see submission of wives to husbands. We see submission of children to parents. We see submission of the people to government leaders. And we see in the scriptures why God has given, given government and what government is to do. And the citizens are to submit to those governing authorities. We see that there is to be submission of workers to employers. Right, The employees don't run the place. It's the employers. They submit to the employer. We see in Scripture that there is to be submission to church leaders. That God has given church leaders and the people, as they come together, right, come under that authority of the pastor that we believe God has placed in that congregation. I don't have that ultimate authority. I first submit to God. And then in a congregational struggle situation, in many ways, right, I submit to you. I don't run this place. I submit to God. I say, this is where God is leading us. We pray about it. We seek his face. And then the people of God say, okay, we trust you. You're the man that God has led here. So we will submit and surrender. And so we see submission all throughout life. But he's going to specifically apply it first to the marriage relationship. So let me give you an overview of these verses. What we see first in verses 22 through 24 is God first has a word to wives. He speaks to wives, and right off the bat, it starts rocky, right? Wives, submit to your husband. And so we're going to, next week, that's where we're going to be, verses 22 through 24. So if you're interested in what that word submission means, what that looks like, what it is and it is not, then you don't want to miss next Sunday. 
Then, the following Sunday, we're going to look at what God says to husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That goes through verse 30. Just an interesting observation that somebody made this week as I was reading in a commentary. 40 words are addressed to wives. 115 words are addressed to husbands. See, here's the temptation sometimes, because most, we believe the Bible is clear on this, and we'll get into this, right? Pastors are men, and sometimes men who are pastors maybe have a tendency to emphasize one of these over the other. Males sometimes may want to emphasize wives you are to submit. And yes, and we'll talk about that, but there are triple the amount of words that are spoken to men. And so we're going to see, men, how are we called to lead our families? What does that look like? And then, verses 31 through 33, and this is where we'll end these verses in three weeks, um, we have the purpose of marriage. What does he say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This isn't the first time we read these words. We read it in Genesis chapter 1. In Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked about divorce, these are the words quoting from Genesis 1. Now, the Spirit of God inspiring Paul, right? He writes these words again. So marriage is about leaving and cleaving, right? One man, one woman, one flesh becoming one flesh. But then there's something else that we read here. That marriage points to Christ and the church. That marriage is a picture or a portrait. Richard Koken in his commentary says, Marriage is given by God as the most powerful illustration of Christ's covenant love for his church. Look what he says. This mystery, verse 32, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you go back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and all of these animals. And Adam is naming them like lion and bear. Right? He's giving them names. And it says there's no suitable helper found for Adam. Adam realizes, I'm not like any of these. So what does God do? Out of Adam, he creates Eve. Not because Adam was lonely. Because Adam was in fellowship with God. Adam could have lived the rest of his life perfectly happy and and safe because he was in the presence of God. There had been no sin. But God creates Eve, right? And he brings them together. And we call this marriage And throughout the Old Testament and into the beginning of the New Testament and the Gospels, like we see marriages all over. We see people distorting, but we see a beautiful picture of marriage. And then as the Gospels are unfolding and right, they're learning more and more, as they're learning from Jesus, the Spirit of God reveals to them that all along, even going back to the garden, there was a purpose for marriage. That marriage, the entire time, It was hidden, and now it's made known, is to be a portrait of Christ and the church. Hear me, husbands and wives. My marriage and your marriage is far more than just a man and a woman living together and having a great relationship, being companions and friends. Your marriage is to be a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what your marriage is ultimately about. That as God brings you together, you are to display the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ to save, of Christ and the church. That is significant. That's life-changing. Therefore, it matters 
how we relate as husband and wife. And so we are to be, first thing I want you to understand as we enter into this, we are to be spirit-filled. The second thing I want you to see in this introduction this morning is that we are to be Bible-taught. We are to be spirit-filled, and we are to be Bible-taught in our understanding of marriage. So what I want to do, because I can't assume everyone in this room or watching online is in the same position as, as what I'm getting ready to present to you, but what I want to do is I want to present a big picture of marriage. I'm going to give you, I think it's three. I had four, but I was going to do three. And I'm going to close with, a, with an example and an illustration. So big picture of marriage. Number one, God is the creator and designer of all things. This is foundational. This is where our worldview, the way we see the world, this is where it begins. It goes back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God made, created the heavens and the earth. And if God created the heavens and the earth and he created all of that, as you continue to read, what we also see is God created Adam and Eve. He created marriage. Right, as we just saw in Ephesians 5, right, the, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. We believe this includes marriage. So here's, here's the question. Is marriage given by God, or is it a cultural construct? Is marriage given by God, or is it just something that people created way back in the day? Now listen, cultures differ on how they see marriage. Some cultures, it's an arranged marriage. Praise God, I'm not in one of those cultures, right? For some, it is. For some cultures, right, they make a bigger deal of marriage than in others. Marriage is becoming less valuable here, more people cohabitating, and we'll get into that at some point, I'm sure, in the next three weeks, right? And so marriage maybe culturally differs at different places, but the bottom line is, where did marriage come from? And in the scriptures, we clearly see the design of God in life and in marriage. John Stott has a great summary of what I think is the biblical idea of marriage. And I couldn't have said it better than myself, so this is going to be on the screen. We'll leave it up there for a couple minutes if you want to write it down. Hopefully you can see that, yeah. Marriage isn't, and just think, just think how different this is than the definition of marriage in our culture. Marriage is an exclusive Right off the bat, exclusive, a lot of people will disagree with that. An exclusive heterosexual, we know a lot of people disagree with that, covenant, it's not a contract, it's a covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned with a gift of children. We could probably add one or two things there, but I think that's a pretty helpful summary if you just want to think, what is biblical marriage? So I'm putting that up there as an example. Because here's what we see. What we have seen is the design of God in marriage. So you have that over here, the design of God in marriage. But what we have also seen rapidly happen is that the culture, right, has departed from God's design of marriage. So the culture's here. They've departed from what we believe 
the Bible clearly teaches as God's design for marriage. Now follow me. As people who claim the name of Jesus, you're in the middle right now. Between God's design for marriage in a culture that has departed, and you have to decide what you're going to do in 2022. What we have seen some Christians do, and I use that word loosely, is they grew up in the church. They were taught the Word of God. Maybe at one point they believed in the Word of God. Maybe they even put their faith in Jesus. But they go off to college. They go off to university. They begin to build relationships with people who see the world differently than they do. They're exposed to different things. And rather than staying here, they outright retreat from God's design. And now they're in a culture who has departed from God's design. And they have departed. They no longer believe in God. They no longer go to church. They've rejected all that their mom and dad taught them. They've completely retreated. You have many who have done that. But then what you also have are some who don't want to completely retreat. They find some benefit in the church. They find some value in some of Jesus' teachings. So what they do is not retreat. What they do is they try to reinvent God's word. I read a, an article this week about a lady who was writing on Ephesians 5 who said, did God really mean when he was talking about this mystery is profound referring to Christ in the church, she outright denied any submission, any headship, that God isn't interested in that, he just wants companions, that we don't need to hold to, that's archaic, chauvinistic, she just trying, she still believes the Bible, she says, still goes to church, she's just trying to reinvent it. So we can still keep one foot in the church, but we, man, we got to kind of accommodate the culture. That's where a lot of Christians are today. But I don't believe retreating or retelling the story, either one of those are biblical and faithful to Scripture. I believe what God is calling us to in 2022 is a recommitting of our lives to the Word of God. You are in the middle you will not, hear me, be able to hide much longer. Like part of me wanted to say, Philip, don't record these next four weeks of sermons. Like I don't want them out there. I don't want anybody to see it and then like just start coming at us as a church, right? The temptation is to hide. You, in 2022, and going forward in a culture that I think we've already lost. We've already lost. Now, praying for God's revival and grace and a bringing back, but by and large, we're even losing Christians who have either retreated or are retelling, and you have a choice. Will you recommit your life to the Word of God to say this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God, and whatever it says, I will stake my life on it. And if I suffer, I suffer. If I face persecution, I face persecution. If I lose my job, I lose my job. If I don't get the job because they ask me about my faith or what I do or what I believe, then I lose my job. But a recommitting our lives to God's word. That's my prayer as we go through this. Some of you, everything that I say, you're yes and amen. This is the position the church has held for 2,000 years. But for some of you, you're going to want to push back on some of this stuff because it's not what the culture believes and you have to decide. 
And I'm not, I'm not telling you just because I say it, you have to believe it. In fact, I want you to study the Scriptures yourself. But my prayer is you'll come to the position that we're going to hold to the authority of God's Word. So, so that's the first thing. God's the creator, the designer of all things. So we need to hold to His Word. Number two is this. Since God is the creator, then we celebrate life, marriage, and the gift of sex. I told you we'd probably go a little bit long this morning. So just hang with me. We'll get to the spaghetti, I promise. It'll still be there. Since God is the creator, then we celebrate life, marriage, and the gift of sex. So let's just apply this. Church, we have to hold fast to the word of God. So if we believe that God is the creator, then we believe that all life matters. And that includes life in the womb. That life begins at conception. Either God is the creator or he's not. And if you're here by natural selection or by happenstance, then it really doesn't matter what you do. There is no moral right or wrong, and we get to decide that. But if there is a creator and a designer, and the Bible is clear that there is, then we must submit to him and his authority. And he is the one who gives life. So therefore, we stand for life. In two weeks, um, we're going to have uh, somebody come from the pregnancy center. And that's going to be the focus in two weeks. And they're going to share for a few minutes about what we're doing, what they do, the work that they do, and how we can help support that and um, encourage that. And so looking forward to that. We believe life in the womb matters. But hear me, we got to go further. We believe, and this is something we've seen the culture depart from and even Christians, we believe that children are a gift from God. Children are not a hindrance. They're not a nuisance. They are not something that will keep you from reaching your dreams. Right? There are countries that the birth rate is so low that they eventually, going forward, will not be able to repopulate their culture. That children are something that people put off further and further, longer and longer, and many people want nothing to do with kids. Northside must be a place that delights in seeing children run around. Maybe not the running around part, like walking quickly, right? Walking quickly. But we delight in that. Like what you saw this morning, you ought to celebrate that. They're not ought to be, oh my goodness, the bells. What are they? Like children, no, we celebrate that. When there is a child around you that's a little bit louder than you would like for them to be, the response is not, man, why don't that mom and dad get their act together? The response is praise God for that child. Man, that is life, and we love them, and we love her, and we love this family. Man, this is why, this is why Christians ought to be having lots of babies. Look, our nursery, there are not as many babies in the nursery. And if we don't begin to have more babies, we're going to have a hole as they get older. So we need, we need to make a matter of prayer, Lord. Bring more young families in here that we can love and disciple because we want to see more and more infants and babies. We want to have child dedications. We want to celebrate the gift of life. This also means that we are to be people who celebrate the intimacy of marriage. This means that we ought to be people who celebrate the permanency of marriage, but also the intimacy of marriage. And that we recognize that sex is not something that we shy away from. It's not something, ooh, we don't talk about. It is the gift of God. And I know we got some kids in the room, moms and dads, you can have fun explaining that later, right? But, but it is something that is preached on, that we celebrate, and that we commit. 
that the gift of sex is between one man and one woman in marriage. And I will not find myself caught up in adultery or an emotional relationship with somebody. That I will not give myself to pornography. That I will do whatever it takes to purge that from my life. That I will remain single and faithful until God provides that person. And even then, we will commit to be celibate and faithful until we get married. That that is something we celebrate, the intimacy of marriage. But hear me, hear me clearly. That means we also must celebrate faithful singleness. It is not God's will for everyone to get married. If so, Jesus would have been married. And the Apostle Paul would have been married. Sometimes we as moms, dads, grandparents, Christians, pastors, like we we see a single person and we're like, well, you got anybody yet? You getting married yet? I mean, you're 24, like you're not dating anybody. The reality is that for some, maybe somebody in this room, you will spend your life single and you are not less than somebody who is married. Your life could be just as fulfilling because God has called you to singleness and you will be faithful. You're not going to be sleeping around, but you're going to be faithful to Jesus who is Lord and Savior of your life, that we celebrate that and that we make sure somebody who is single is never excluded because we're all married. And that if there is somebody who is single in this church, that you make it your desire to say, hey, I don't want you to sit by yourself. Will you come sit with me? Hey, will you come over and hang out at my house? Because we understand that this is a gift, that not everyone will get married, and we can celebrate that. And lastly, we also must celebrate the dignity of widowhood. We have many in this church. I got to spend some time with some of you uh, earlier in the week. We got to go down and see Debbie and Ellen. And there are many widows in this room. Listen, you are not less than anybody else in this room. You have been through the loss of losing a husband or a wife. Now, back in Jesus' day, widows had nothing. That's what I love about Jesus. He just comes along. Women were nothing. Widows were nothing. And Jesus just changes it all. And so, widows, you matter. And it's our responsibility to love you and to care for you. And so we recognize all of that matters. All right, third point. Since God is the creator, then we understand Our worth and our value is found in being created by and for God. Your worth and your value is ultimately found in the fact that you were created by God and for God, which means, this is countercultural, what I'm about to say, your identity, your worth, is not found in being married. It's not found in having children. Look, we have, we have husbands and wives who are struggling to have children who maybe God will lead to adopt. Those adopted kids are not lesser than a biological child. That's not where your worth and value is found. And your worth and your value is not found in your sexuality. And we are living in a culture that says your value and your worth is found in your sexuality. And whatever you want to be or think you are, you must act upon it. Because if you don't, then, then you have no worth or value. So here's what I want to do as, as, as I close. Several years ago, I learned about a man by the name of Sam Alberry. Sam is a pastor, and he's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? If you're struggling with 
uh, homosexuality. What does the Bible say about that? I think it's a great, uh, just a short book that kind of summarizes. But here's the interesting thing about Sam. Sam, for his entire life, has struggled with same-sex attraction. I, I heard him speak. He said, listen, my parents didn't raise me in such a way that I wouldn't struggle with this. He said, I didn't choose this. I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to have same-sex attraction. He said, it's always been something I wrestled with. Now, here's the deal. Sam is a pastor. He's a pastor of a church. I believe he's at Emmanuel in Nashville. Sam has struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life. And there was a period when he, I, think he, I think he acted upon it. But now through his relationship with Jesus, he doesn't. He's still single. He said, I have prayed that God would change my desires, that I would have an interest in a lady, that I would get married one day, but that's never happened. He said, so I'm a pastor, I'm celibate, I don't act upon those thoughts, I walk in faithfulness, I love Jesus, but it's just something he's always struggled with. And I just want to share a little bit about what Sam says because it ties into this whole point of identity. He says, God's message for gay people is the same as his message for everyone. Repent and believe. It is the same invitation to find fullness of life in God, the same offer of forgiveness and deep, wonderful, life-changing love. It was this message I first heard at my friend's church, the message I have tried to live in the light of in the years since. Through it all, as someone who lives with homosexuality, I have found biblical Christianity to be a wonderful source of comfort and joy. God's word to me on this issue at times feels confusing and difficult, but it is nevertheless deeply and profoundly good. The gospel of Jesus is wonderful news for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. I use, this is important, I use the term same-sex attraction just then because an immediate challenge is how I describe myself. In Western culture today, the obvious term for someone with homosexual feelings is gay. But in my experience, this often refers to far more than someone's sexual orientation. It has come to describe an identity and a lifestyle. When someone says they're gay, or for that matter, matter lesbian or bisexual, they normally mean that, as well as being attracted to someone of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves. It's their identity. It's who they are. It's what gives them worth and value. And it's for this reason that I tend to avoid using the term. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction. Listen to this. But describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. But if your sexuality becomes your identity, whether it's same-sex attraction, opposite-sex attraction, or just gender confusion, if that's your identity, then you're going to act upon whatever you feel. And let me quote one more quote from him as we tie this in to the gospel. He says, ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. Like it must be harder for you to walk with Jesus and not act upon these impulses, these attractions, than it must be for me, a straight Christian. 
He says, as though I have more to give up than they do. Hear this. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks, hear me as we close, if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. So those who have not retreated from the gospel, for those Christians who still want some of the church in Jesus but just want to retell and change the story, here's what they want. Here's what a lot of people want. They want a Savior. Most people recognize there's some sort of sin or wrong in them. What they want is a Savior. But what they don't want is Jesus to be Lord. And here's my challenge to you as we spend the next three weeks in these verses. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without also taking Him as Lord. And if you don't want Jesus to be Lord, then I'm telling you, the next three weeks, it's going to be really hard for you to hear what God's Word has to say. If you're not willing to say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life, and no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what I may be struggling with. And in this room, every single one of us is struggling with some sort of sexual sin, a struggle in our marriage, a struggle with our identity, wrestling with one of these verses in Ephesians 5. We're all struggling with something. And here's the good news. There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's deliverance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must come to saving faith in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. To you close your eyes and bow your head? Father, I pray that something that was said this morning was not only edifying and beneficial, but, Lord, was life-changing. Life-changing, Father. Lord, be with us, be with the bride, be with the body of Christ. I was asking somebody the other day, man, what are, what, what are some of the things that you have seen change the most in your lifetime? And though they didn't say this, I think many of us, as we think about it, would probably be the way the, the world and the culture views marriage. The way the world and, and the culture views relationships and gender and sexuality. Lord, there has been a complete redefining of these things. And here we are. Everyone in this room has to decide how will we understand and see the Word of God? Is it something that we can come to and change and alter and take and hold to the parts that we like and discard the parts that we don't? Or is this, God, your Word? Are you a God who has not only created, but a God who has spoken and who has revealed himself to us, who has preserved that word through the Holy Spirit? And this morning, will we, by faith and trust, hold fast to the word in every area of our life? Or will we reject and retell the story to line up with what we wanted to say? Father, every one of us has to make that decision. And every one of us has to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus? 
Are we going to confess our sins, fall before Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, my sexual sins, my other sins, whatever they may be. God, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And I cry out to you. I need a Savior. Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the Son of God, the Son of Man. Save me and forgive me. Father, whatever somebody is struggling with this morning, I pray that they will find there's deliverance in Christ and your word speaks to it. And God, that you would set them free as we sing this last song. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? I'm just going to give you an opportunity just to worship and to respond to the message, to the singing that we've already heard as we sing one last time together. Let's respond to the Lord.
Alexa, you just want to hang here for a minute? You want to hold a mic or do you want to just speak into this? Um, so Miss Alexa just wants to share a word with the church. You guys have, have known and, and know her story and, and her mom's story, and so she just wanted to share a word of thanks to you all. Go ahead, sweetie. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for all of your outpouring of love, um, whether it was just a thought you had, a prayer, a text, food. Um, you reached out to my kids, my husband. Um, it just meant so much. So just know that each and every, everything you do, was on, it was honoring to my family. Um, you know, my sister and I were talking. Um, Y'all have been with me through the 10-year journey that, honestly, my home church they saw a part of it, but y'all really saw all of it. Some of you have been with me through the beginning, and some have entered late. But, um, but no matter when y'all entered, y'all have all been so faithful to pray for us. Um, my family was blessed. The celebration was honoring, and it truly was a celebration. Um, so I just thank you for that. So I just want to. I already knew this, but I got to see it um, Friday, just how loved the Lucas family is um, at Northside. And, um, and having heard so much about your mom through that, because I didn't get to meet her um, before all the Alzheimer's and, and what it did to her, I now know why you're such an amazing person. So that was, that was awesome to hear about that. So as she mentioned, it's unique because you guys have walked with her through, through at least the 10 years that her mom was here, and for some of you even, even before that. And so... Um, Aren't you thankful for Jesus and the hope that he gives, even in the midst of, of loss, right? Our anchor holds in the veil, within the veil because of, of Christ. Um, I told you it'd be closer to 12 o'clock before we ate, but here's the good thing. You don't have to go very far today to get food. You don't have to go wait in the line at the restaurant or drive there. It's literally right in the fellowship hall. So let me give you some instructions, and then Kevin, the deacon of the week, is going to come and pray. So you are invited. We've tried to make a big deal about this. We're having a lunch today, a spaghetti lunch. It's put on by the WOW Sunday School class. So huge thank you to those, um, to those ladies. And all the money that you give, it's donations. You can donate a dollar or a thousand dollars, however much you want to pay for the spaghetti lunch. It's all donations. Um, and all of that money is going to go to help those in our church who are going in January on the Ecuador mission trip. And so right now we have four who are going, and that's Mark, Cynthia, Tripp, and Gina. So we have four from our church. So the money that we raise today, all of that will go to help them and the cost as they go to work with the Most and John and Giselle. So you can pay in cash. If you don't have cash, listen to some instructions so nobody gets confused. You can write a check. That check is to be payable to Northside, and in the memo line, write Ecuador. So we know it's going for the Ecuador trip. We have to-go boxes. If you can't stay, you can go through the line, grab a to-go box. And if the seating is full, because our fellowship hall is only so big, you can go right across the way to the education building. We have several classrooms that have tables and chairs, and you can just hang out and fellowship um, in there. So as soon as you leave, out the door, hang a left, and enjoy lunch, enjoy fellowship. Also want to make mention um, that we have a finance team tomorrow at 7, and then we have our men's breakfast Saturday at 7.30. Kevin, if you'll come. Yesterday was our first day of Upward. Man, it was not hot. It was incredible. Um, so thank you to all of you who helped. Your kids are playing. It was an incredible day. So if you'll stand, 
Kevin is going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our food and our time of fellowship. convicting word and that we would take it serious dear lord and just thank you for pastor aaron for uh, bringing that word to us this morning i uh, just thank you for the ladies who have prepared our lunch dear lord and just thank you for for that effort we just ask that your hand would be upon our time of fellowship and that we would be able to uh, come alongside our ecuador mission team and help support that cause dear lord in your heavenly and gracious name amen <laughs> 